If you've been asking yourself, is this normal? Are these symptoms that I'm feeling with Hashimoto's normal? This episode is for you. Sometimes our symptoms become our new norm. Feeling terrible becomes our new norm. And ladies, do not let that become your new norm. Today I have on a very special guest. She's a two-timer, Dr. Jolene Brighton. She just came out with a book, her third book, Is This Normal? Beautiful cover, well-written, a great deep dive into sexual health questions, hormone questions, and there's a guide in the back to take you through a 28-day program. In this episode, we dive into Hashimoto's and libido, how liver and gut health can affect our Hashimoto symptoms, which conventional medicine does not talk about, as well as how we can start to support our Hashimoto's from a holistic approach. I'm Dr. Emily Kybird. I'm a chiropractor since 2007. I'm also a movement expert. I help women with Hashimoto's learn how to work out without the burnout. Most women, when they sit down with their doctor, are either talking medication or supplements or a game plan to work on all the internal things, which is great. You need that. That is one piece. But no one is talking about how to move your body with an autoimmune condition. No one is talking about, oh, I'm tight here, but I'm loose here. This is moving too much. This is not moving enough. I feel really weak since getting a Hashimoto's diagnosis. That is what we talk about on this podcast. In addition to bringing on great functional medicine experts like Dr. Jolene Brighton to talk about all the internal workings and make it really simple and actionable. Get a pen and paper. There's some great information shared in this podcast and I hope you enjoy. Dr. Jolene Brighton, welcome to Thyroid Strong Podcast. Super excited to have you here. You are one of the few people who this is your second time on the podcast. Ah, I love it. I'm so excited to be back and it's so good to see you. I know, same. So I'm going to give you a little fun fact that maybe you didn't know. Your first book, Healing Your Body Naturally After Childbirth, I bought before I even know you because I, yeah, I needed the help after having that first baby and not knowing anything. And then the first time you were on the podcast was for your book, Beyond the Pill. And now you have a new book out called, Is This Normal? And I love the cover. It is amazing. I also love the UK cover. Why write this book? They're both really fun. They're beautiful. (laughs) But I love, I love it. Why write this book? Why put this information out there? This book was written during the pandemic, which was certainly a time, I think, where we all started paying a lot more attention to our health. But what I came to recognize was that no one was really getting the support they needed from their doctors, not during that time, not prior to that time. And in a lot of ways, this was the prequel to be on the pill. It was everything that everyone ever should have known about their bodies. And all of the questions I've gotten from patients and readers and people on social media about, is this normal? Is this not? So, And I decided, like, let's wrap it all up in one book. That way people can have a manual. Some people have called it the Bible. I wouldn't go there. But I wanted people to have a manual to their body that helps them understand why it does what it does, how they can support it, and how to have the best hormones of their life. The listeners to Thyroid Strong are women with Hashimoto's. And a lot of women are diagnosed during perimenopause or menopause. And the symptoms of going through that transition in life are very similar to Hashimoto symptoms. Can you share what are some of the signs that 
you know, for someone who's new, who is maybe new to their diagnosis or hasn't been diagnosed yet, what are some signs that our hormones are not normal? Yeah. Well, I love that you bring that up because with Hashimoto's, I feel like it's one of those things that gets put into buckets of you're just getting older. It's perimenopause. You're a new mom. You're in menopause. Uh, and it gets really confusing. So specifically with like perimenopause and Hashimoto's, very common time we know after age 35, we have a much higher chance of being diagnosed with Hashimoto's. And that for people to understand, our hormones are very much linked to our immune system. And as we get older, we have more hormonal dysregulation. We have a decline in estrogen. Our immune system is not as robust. And everybody gets that of like elderly people don't get fevers the same way a baby gets a fever. But what they might not understand is that it's the hormonal dysregulation that can lead to immune system dysregulation. And so you might have hot flashes, and it could very well be perimenopause, but hot flashes and feeling like you're overheating can also be a thyroid storm. And you would know because now your heart is racing and you're sweating profusely and you're hot, but your heart is racing. And maybe you also have diarrhea going on as well. And you're losing your hair, which is also tricky because you can lose your hair in perimenopause as well. We know like 50% of women lose their hair at some point in their lifetime. And that can be a transient, you got an infection, lose your hair, or it's hormonally related. So those things are not normal. Waking up feeling achy, like you're in so much pain. I remember before I got my Hashimoto's diagnosis, stepping out of bed and my feet just being so painful every day. And even to this day, if my thyroid medication is not right or something's causing my thyroid binding globulin to go up or I'm postpartum and I need to get my thyroid checked, that I will notice the musculoskeletal stuff still. So there's the musculoskeletal stuff. We talked about the hot flushes, things like brain fog can also show up in perimenopause, can also show up with thyroid disease. And doctors are like, hmm, you're getting older. In fact, brain fog should be a big red flag for any provider. And this I really take issue with. Women make up 60, over 60%. It's estimated about 66% of the Alzheimer's population. That's no joke. And early symptoms and signs of brain fog. Yeah, it could just be thyroid disease and you need thyroid hormone. But without the stimulation of thyroid hormone or estrogen, these key hormones, there can be brain degeneration that can be putting us at risk later in life. So obviously, I wrote a whole book on this. I could keep going. But those are just some of the big ones that I want to highlight that I feel like, you know, that along with fatigue are things that we're told. Like if you have Hashimoto's, if you have Hashimoto's and perimenopause, if you straight up just have perimenopausal symptoms, that we're just told it's just normal. Just accept it. Yeah. One of the symptoms that a lot of people don't talk about is a low libido, mm. right? With Hashimoto's. <laughs> Can you yeah. speak to, I don't know, maybe why that isn't talked about is maybe potentially one of the unspoken symptoms. And if someone is interested in kind of getting their libido back, how they would do that? Yeah. Okay. Two things here I want to say. One is doctors will often have the mindset that sex is just this extra bonus. Like orgasms are great if you can have them, but they're not necessary for life. And they're wrong. Even the World Health Organization has said that pleasure is a key component of health. It is one of the key metrics that we should be measuring as well and understanding that people need pleasure in their life. Like we're not, the, it, it so reminds me of like the food is just fuel kind of th thought where people take it to the extreme and they'll be like, 
you shouldn't be enjoying your food. It should just be fueling you. And I'm like, you didn't develop taste buds, though, and a whole brain ready to react to these flavors for no reason. Like, mama nature knows what's up. Orgasms are the same thing. Mama nature didn't design a clitoris that only, you know, full purpose is pleasure. Because why? Because nothing? No, because pleasure is really important. And we know that with regular pleasure and connection, there is an oxytocin release. And oxytocin is an important modulator of our immune system, of our health, and of cortisol, which can be problematic in Hashimoto's. So the other part is, I think patients really push back on the talk about libido because they're like, okay, so there's, there's a camp who is like, I just feel so awful. They're angry, right? I get it. Doctors can suck. Like we know doctors <laughs> who suck. I fire doctors who suck in my life where I'm just like, yeah, we're not working out. It's you. It's not me. I'm leaving. Gotta go. So, and when you're inflamed, you don't feel good. Um, inflammation, these uh, interleukins specifically, they're like hormones in the brain, but they're the chemical messengers in the immune system. They can definitely make you feel irritable and cranky. And so there can be pushback from patients of like, I'm just trying to survive and feel well in my body. And now you're trying to lay this expectation on me. And I think that comes a lot from society's, I mean, that's what it is, right? But like society's perspective is always that like, Women are here to please men. It's how a lot of sex education is set up. And even if it's not overtly said, the, the message is like vaginas, they exist for penises to enter and babies to exit. And there's no real talk about female pleasure in most sex education in the United States. And so I totally get that. But the problem is, is that if you lose your libido and you have thyroid disease, that is telling me we have a hormone issue. So I have a whole chapter about libido. In is this normal? And I talk about the psychological aspects of libido. So in the book, in the libido chapter, you will find a quiz about your gas pedals and your brakes, which is a model that was formulated by two researchers at the Kinsey Institute. And it is, so they come up with this analogy where they call it the gas pedals and the brakes. So people think like turn on, turn off. But if you think about a car, I love, I love Bancroft and Jansen's analogy more because Nobody, well, you better not just be slamming on the brakes and slamming on the gas as you drive day to day, but that's not the experience day to day, right? And the same is true of sexual desire and the things that people would call turn-ons and turn-offs. And it goes so much more beyond just turning on the candles, you know, or the mood lighting and and getting the nice scents going. Yeah, what we really need to focus on a lot is brakes. And why I bring this up for the Hashimoto's community is that we need to understand the hormone aspect, which I talk about in the book, and I'm going to say a little bit more about that. But we also need to understand breaks because the same things that are your breaks with sexual desire, so your libido, your arousal, your, your pleasure altogether, those same things can contribute to immune system dysregulation and your autoimmune disease, which I don't hear, I've never really heard anyone else talking about. Yeah. Um, so it's so for example, one of the breaks that can come up for people is body image. And that is so hard because with Hashimoto's, um, so I just went through, I will share, I had a miscarriage a couple of months ago, and following that, my thyroid really went haywire. My body was really invested in this one, and that's why. Um, but unfortunately, it didn't work out. And I gained 10 over 10 pounds in three weeks. Like 
and I was having trouble getting my labs drawn. There was, um, this was around Easter and in, in Puerto Rico, uh, they take off like tons of time for the holidays, for that holiday. And then you can't get your blood, your blood has to get shipped off the island. It's a whole thing. So, oops. Um, but I was gaining weight and I didn't want to just adjust my medication without seeing what was going on. Um, and so I just say that because that's not the first time in my life where I've been like, oh my God, I'm gaining weight rapidly, like out of nowhere. That's definitely going to con contribute to body image. And then that's going to, that can put you out of the mood, right? Or you're aroused and things are going, but then you're like, I'm not aroused anymore because I started thinking about this and I started spectating, thinking about how my body looks. Well, the same negative talk that comes with the way we view ourselves and start talking in that way has been shown to be inflammatory. And that can be leading to immune system dysregulation. And so while the quiz is really about you, I recommend people who are in partnerships have their partner take it as well. You understanding the things that really do it for you and the things that really don't. And in the context of the things that don't, those are the, the blockades that we have to remove in the day. And we really have to also honor and just recognize and respect that for some of us, you know, stress is going to play a huge role. And with that, you can still, you can take those things as well and look at how they affect the immune system. Now, the immune hormone interplay is why we also experience low libido. Inflammation goes up. Okay, so firstly, like reproductive health is very expensive. <laughs> it is very yes. expensive energetically. And we have to respect that. So just understand that your body is not betraying you. You are not broken. If you have no sexual desire whatsoever, as you were battling an autoimmune disease and, you know, recovering. So understand that what your body says is we need to survive. That is key. That is primary. And this reproductive health, we're going to put it on the back burner. And in doing that, it will shift to cortisol produ production going up. Yay, because that's going to keep inflammation in check until those poor little HPA access communication pathways and receptors that I talk about in the book get maxed out, have to shift, have to compensate. And then we find ourselves with symptoms of low cortisol. Don't worry, I got protocols for that in the book. In addition to that, so we've got this shift. We go into cortisol. We go away from like sex hormone production that makes us feel sexy. And as inflammation goes up, we will start converting testosterone into estrogen. Now you need both estrogen and testosterone to have your sexy thoughts and to feel sexy in your body and to get lubricated and uh, aroused and all of these things that we associate, it, associate with sex. However, too much of the estrogen can be really problematic. It can make us feel, well, one, there, here comes the weight gain, hips, butt, thighs, getting uh, water retention, feeling bloated, right? So we're not just not feeling sexy. We can also feel really irritable. And if you've ever had the PMS vibes or PMDD vibes where you're just like, every noise my partner makes just makes me want to like and some people <laughs> patients have said I just want to jump out the window I just want to throw a pot at their head I'm gonna smash all the things like you're feeling ragey <laughs> friend we need to get your estrogen right are there foods that could help support libido oh I love that. okay so firstly this is uh, my approach in the book is not this like take all the foods away kind of approach um, people have asked me that and they get really nervous. And I'm like, I'm all about let's build in the nutrient density. And that's always been my my bag because I'm a foodie and I love food. And as somebody who's been a nutrition scientist for over 20 years, which is really weird to say because I'm old like that, um, I have always like taken issue with the fact that 
there's there can be this hyperfixation of like taking away things. And instead, we need to look at building things up. Now, the great thing about foods that support your libido is they can also support your hormones. Duh, okay, yeah, but your your thyroid as well. So um, oysters are an aphrodisiac. <laughs> and then part of that is probably because of the zinc that they contain. And because like to acquire them, you usually have to go to like a fancy restaurant and slow down and be present with your partner. So there's that. Um, other things, so citrulline found in watermelon rinds, that can be helpful. Um, I recommend people just like go to Pinterest, leverage Pinterest. Pickled <laughs> watermelon rinds are delicious. Um, I will also take watermelon rinds and just uh, blend them up in the blender and have them as a base to a smoothie as well. And so that's one thing that can help. If you're somebody who is struggling with PMS and cramps and low libido, Adding saffron to your diet can be beneficial as well. You don't have to have all three of those things, but I'm all about foods that will help all as much things as possible. So that's something else that can also be beneficial. It's also been shown in studies when you use a supplement of saffron to be helpful in overcoming anorgasmia, which occurs with SSRIs. So uh, SSRIs that are keeping serotonin around, that can make it where it's harder to achieve orgasm or when you do, it's kind of meh. And saffron as a supplement has been shown to be beneficial. I'm like, just add it into your diet as well. And that can be helpful. And then as we were talking about the inflammatory piece, bringing in ginger is great for like cardiovascular health. So anything that helps circulation is going to help blood flow down there as well. But bringing in like ginger, turmeric, omega-3 fatty acids, these things might seem counterintuitive. Like what does that have to do with sex? They're going to help with that inflammation. If you're helping inflammation, of course, you want to figure out like what's your cause of inflammation, but you can help dampen it down. If you're doing that, that's going to help with those testosterone estrogen balance and with your cortisol levels being optimized as well. Just load on the saffron. Just <laughs> I, I laughed like when I was reading these studies, I was like, this is why this is so expensive. Exactly. It's such an expensive spice. <laughs> um, so for women who have gotten diagnosed with their Hashimoto's, maybe through a conventional medicine doctor where it's lab testing, medication, see you in six months. For those women who don't know that there is potentially a liver or gut component to yeah. their Hashimoto's and hormonal health, can you give insight into that? Because I think a lot of women are just like, I'm taking this medication and I don't really feel better and I don't know why. Yeah. Okay, let's like pause right there though. If your doctor is like, start this medication, see you in six months, get a new doctor. Okay, because we should be evaluating you in six to eight weeks from starting a medication or changing your medication dose. And why six to eight weeks? Because that's the time it takes for your TSH to shift and for your body to respond and for your blood markers to show that. If you're pregnant, we may do it even sooner. We might do it more like, you know, four weeks, sometimes even sooner, just depending on like what's going on, um, which is a bit of a tangent. So I'm not going to go there. Okay, <laughs> we're going to bring it back in. That's a great point, so, though. Great point. Yeah. You know, I just think it's just so important to know because it does happen so, so often. So the gut and the liver are major conversion sites of taking T4 into T3. And T4 is great. You need it. Good for babies. So everybody who's listening, I've seen um, something going around social media that's had me really mulling over. Like, I don't want to address this person publicly. I don't even know if I want to address them privately, but I do feel like I need to talk about it Um on my page uh, is just this idea of this person who has a very large following talking about how her doctor saw that her free T4 was below one and her doctor and she's pregnant 
And her doctor said, well, I need to, I want to take you off of your natural desiccated thyroid hormone and I want to put you on Synthroid, right? Synthetic T4. And she's like, I told my doctor no and you don't have to do it. And my T4 is always low. And then he tried to fear monger me by telling me horrible things could happen to my baby. And I'm looking at this being like horrible things can happen to your baby. This is absolutely true. And so I want people to understand because I feel like a lot of the times what happens in the Hashimoto's and just thyroid community is people are like, T3 is on the pedestal and we glorify it. And I love me some T3 because I also like energy and a regular period. I love things too, Brian. Um, I'm having a bad mood. It's good. Um, But T4 also is essential, um, especially in pregnancy. And so even though we're like, this is the inactive form, understand that free T4 should be above one, especially in pregnancy. And if it's not, I personally, as a physician, wouldn't be like, oh, let's just switch your thyroid medication. I think that's risky to do in pregnancy. If T4 is low, just give a little T4. Just give a little bump and and get that baby into the second trimester to when their thyroid can start taking over. So I did do the little bit of tangent thing, but it's just important that people understand that what we're going to talk about thyroid and gut health being so important for that conversion, it's super, super important that we are taking care of the thyroid overall. And um, it's exciting now to start seeing that like, there's more investigation beginning into T1 and T2, which is like two hormones that come from the thyroid we haven't known much about, but science is getting there, which if you go back and listen to me in a podcast from like eight or 10 years ago, I was like, I'm waiting for the day when that science finally says like these are valid. So back to the gut and liver. I promise I'm going to stop taking side side tangents, everybody. (laughs) Do the tangents. I love them. I'm learning new stuff like every minute. Okay, awesome. Because uh, sometimes I'm just like, just stay on point. But I'm like, oh, but there's so like other things to understand on this pathway uh, that will help you be ahead of the average Hashimoto's individual, which I think I have to just say, I think um, the Hashimoto's community has some of the most like really brilliant people in them, the way they like understand their health. So kudos to your audience as well. Okay, so liver health, important for that thyroid hormone conversion. Your liver is also important for packaging up estrogen you no longer need and moving that out of the body. So it's not going to be the one that moves it out. It's going to be up to your liver and your kidneys to do that. This is why um, we drink water, right? We tell people all the time, be drinking plenty of water. We say about half your body weight in ounces. And the reality is, is that if you live somewhere humid, if you're working out, if you're breastfeeding, uh, you may need more. Okay, so understand it's a generalization. That is one way that you can get your estrogen out of your body. Now, the liver we want to support by eating things like cruciferous vegetables. Here's the moment where somebody's like, what the hell, goitrogen? (laughs) So I'm going to go on a little bit of tangent, but it it needs to be said. So goitrogens are not going to be an issue for you unless you're eating like 10 pounds of raw broccoli. And if you're doing that, well, you're you're not going to do that. Your gut will stop you before you can even get there. Um, it's just, that's like so much fiber friends. Um, the reality is, is that goitrogen myth, it really was born out of this, uh, this population that was severely iodine deficient. We are not iodine deficient in our society. If you're going out to eat, you're getting iodized salt. If you're eating seafood, you're getting iodine. If you're eating a lot of things, you are getting iodine. In fact, it is super, super hard for grapes. Like just just ask a friend who has Graves' disease, find somebody online, how difficult it is to avoid iodine in food. We got it, okay? We are not iodine deficient. 
in this country. So the iodine deficiency and the goitrogen issue, maybe. But I'm asking you to eat cooked cruciferous vegetables. Um, I think having cooked cruciferous vegetables, like if you want to have raw cabbage, like you're going to be fine with that. Nobody eats that much raw cabbage on their salad. Like, and if you're eating coleslaw, if you're adding vinegar to that, that's breaking it down. If you're eating a kale salad, you massage your kale first. That breaks down goitrogens. You add anything acidic, that's breaking down goitrogens. You're chewing it. You better be chewing it. <laughs> that's breaking down goitrogens. So you are breaking down goitrogens. And you're also not going to eat enough of them. And if you are somebody who's like, well, the myth runs so deep, I'm still afraid, go with broccoli sprouts. Eat broccoli sprouts because you only need just a couple tablespoons of them, like, you know, about a fourth a cup. So a little more than a couple of tablespoons um, to match what 2.2 pounds, I believe is what the research says, of broccoli benefits, of whole broccoli benefits. So there you go. It's very, very little. Yeah. So with that, we want to eat those because they're going to provide us dim sulforaphane. That's going to help with our phase one and phase two liver detox that gets us the best estrogen metabolites. So all estrogen metabolites can be problematic, but if we can get more of the two hydroxy and less of, you know, pushing into four and 16 hydroxy estrone, don't worry, everybody, that's just some like biochemistry. You don't have to worry about those numbers. It's just about like, this is why we want to be eating our cruciferous vegetables, running those detox pathways. Now, why it's so important that we get those estrogen levels in check is because we know that when there's an estrogen imbalance with progesterone, that we can have a harder time using our thyroid hormone as well. Now, once things go through your uh, liver, which by the way, anybody who's listening, if you're really visual, I, instead of like explaining all of this with words in my book, I was like, here is a liver. Here, is, here are the nutrients for phase one. Here are the nutrients for phase two. And then in the back of my book, there's an appendix that's a table. And it's like, here is the nutrient. Here is the food you find it in. <laughs> and here's how you know if you're you know, too low in it. And um, I take you through all that. So you don't have to read anything. You could literally just flip to that page, look at that picture, go to the chart and start incorporating those foods. I, this book, I was like, how do I make it even easier? Now that we got TikTok, how do I make it even easier for people to get like 15 <laughs> seconds of information? And because we're all busy, like, you know, we got toddlers, we ain't got time to like, yeah. Yeah. Um, so with that, after through the liver, we got to go to the gut. So we got the kidneys, we covered them, you got to drink your water. And, the, and if you are eating and you're salting your food and you're getting, you know, a variety of things, you're going to get your electrolytes in, but you may need to be someone who needs to add electrolytes as well. Um, I think it is helpful in the morning if you have Hashimoto's to start your day with lemon water and like I do like a pinch of Himalayan salt in there. Um, you can really do like any kind of salt. I just like my, I like pink salt. It makes me feel fancy in the morning. <laughs> and that's for the, that's for the electrolyte content. That's for the electrolyte content. Got it. Yeah. And it's just a good way to start the day. It's, it's very supportive of your adrenal glands. So that vitamin C, your adrenals love it. They're some of the most concentrated tissue in the body with vitamin C. And if you've got Hashis, you have to support your adrenal glands. And that vitamin C is going to support progesterone production as well. And progesterone helps with utilization of thyroid hormone at the cell. So yay, we want that as well. And then the electrolytes help with that water balance, which we want in our life, plus your cardiovascular health. And if you don't know, your adrenal glands also produce aldosterone, which govern your blood pressure. And so we don't want to go like over crazy with like way too much water because then the adrenals have to work harder to fix that problem. 
Okay, we're going back to the gut. I've said it a few times. All right, we're going to the gut now. So once we've packaged everything up in the liver, we're going to send it out through the gut. Here's where things can get tricky. Friends, I talk about in the book, we want to be eating fiber every day, at least 25 grams. You cannot start with 25 grams. If you have a low fiber diet, it is gradually increasing. Sometimes they even go as slow as five grams a week with people. So five grams of fiber every day for one week, 10 grams of fiber every day for the next week. And then we increase till we get to 25. Why that's important for people with Hashimoto's is a couple of things. One is that we know that low thyroid hormone slows our gut motility. We can end up with gut dysbiosis because of that. We can even have small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. If we go too fast and then we're bloated and we're feeling awful, like, do you think you want to go back and do that again? No, you're the worst. I don't want to do that. And also you just like, I just feel like you've only got so much time on this planet. And as a doctor, I should be advising you in a way to do things that gets you the most benefit without costing you any more time that this freaking disease already costs you. So with that, eating that 25 grams of fiber, we want to keep the microbiome healthy and happy. That is because if there's dysbiosis and if you have Hashimoto's, there probably is, we can have an increase in the production of an enzyme known as beta-glucuronidase. That reactivates estrogen and puts it back into circulation. And that can be problematic for our hormones. And we can start experiencing hormone-related symptoms because of it. So fiber is going to be key. And I want people to understand that doesn't look like, oh, uh, and also be careful of your fiber sources because even fiber supplements will have gluten in them. And mm. I can't even tell you how many times I've had patients be like, oh, I got this, you know, fiber supplement and now I'm just feeling so much worse. And I look at the label and I'm like, oi, can we just get some psyllium husk, <laughs> like just some organic psyllium husk, mix that in, fresh ground flax seeds. So I talk about seed cycling in the book and then bringing in more plants into the diet. And we want that variety because that's going to keep the microbiome happy and healthy. If your microbiome is happy and healthy, your thyroid's going to be healthier, your immune system's going to be healthier, your cortisol levels are going to be better, and your vagina is going to be healthier as well. When someone is first diagnosed, there's this thyroid component, maybe they're having bloating, so maybe there's some gut component. They're really tired and dragging in the morning. So there's a adrenal, maybe cortisol dysregulation where, and I know you don't take patients anymore, but like if someone was like the Dr. Brighton approach, and obviously it's bio-individual, because sometimes it can feel really overwhelming of knowing where to start. If you were going to kind of take someone, because I know some practitioners are like, adrenals first, then thyroid. And I'm just curious of your approach for someone who is new to their diagnosis that feels like, oh my God, all the things, how do I do this? Yeah, it is super overwhelming. So it is, okay, a few things here. One, we, I do like to assess people's labs first. So I'm never going to go in with a thyroid medication unless I know someone's thyroid labs. And even if you're, you've got TPO antibodies, that doesn't mean we start a medication. And why this is important to understand is that there's a lot of providers who will say, oh, you have TPO antibodies, therefore you're fine because the rest of your thyroid panel is fine. That's not true. You just haven't destroyed enough of your thyroid gland to need a medication yet. How do we prevent that? Then there's people who are like, if you have TPO antibodies, we should just start a medication now because we want to like, you know, lower like the burden of your thyroid. And I'm like, your thyroid's good, bro. Let's work on that immune system. So 
you may need a medication. By the time my Hashimoto's um, was caught, I, I need a medication. I had enough thyroid destruction. I need a medication. And I want people to understand because uh, there's a lot of mindset of where there's like some kind of trophy at the end of this life if you never use a medication. There's not. I need to break it to you. And way, the way I explain thyroid medication, if you need it, it is hormone replacement therapy, much like insulin is hormone replacement therapy. We all understand that a diabetic will die without insulin. What people don't understand is that somebody with hypothyroidism will die without a medication. They will not die as quickly as a diabetic. It will be much more slow, much more painful, much less quality of life, and their loved ones are going to have to watch them deteriorate. And I don't say that to scare anybody or fearmonger anybody into a medication. As much as we can avoid a medication, I'm all about it. But I think it's really important for people to understand that sometimes it's indicated and you'll be trying to heal the gut. But if you can't heal the gut and you're, and, but you're, a medica medication is indicated, part of that is because you don't have enough thyroid. You need thyroid hormone to heal tissues. And so this is just where it gets really like a balancing act of what's going on with the individual. So I have a little article at drbrighton.com about healing Hashimoto's where I walk through a patient case where this patient had come into me and um, this, they had been trying to treat her SIBO so many times to no avail and she like felt so awful. And we just needed to use a little bit of thyroid medication. We do have to support the adrenal glands. And we like, and it's kind of tricky. We have to do all of the things at once for thyroid health, gut health, and adrenal health. But it doesn't mean we have to do all of the things that support those at once. But we do have to be looking at the individual of how do we support all the, their entire system and where they are. Now, if you give thyroid medication and it's too much too quick, they might feel really good for a week, maybe even two weeks, and then it's going to hit them where they're going to be like, they're going to be standing in their kitchen and they're going to feel like a battery just drained out of them. And they're going to be like, oh, like the like 1980s Energizer Bunny commercials of anybody. It's yes. like yes. that, right? And it powers down. It's exactly what it's like. It's like a sad little robot is what you feel like. And you just completely <laughs> power down. Your adrenals have been pushed too far. And your system is telling you, slow down. It is not your body betraying you. It is not that you're broken. Again, it is your body saying... We are slow because we are in a healing phase. We are slow because we need to be slow. And you just rubbed us way up. And you basically said, you know what? I know that there's barely any gas in the tank. Let's put the pedal to the metal and we'll see what happens. And then the engine seizes. And that can take a long time to come back from with those adrenal glands. They can be very cranky about that. And if you don't have um, an ideal lifestyle, like gets painted in the wellness world, like every like influencer is... um maybe really living, but I don't really think they are. And they're like, here's how I start my day. I start with like, you know, deep breathing that lasts for like an hour and a half. And then I have a sauna and I'm just like, who's watching your children? Totally. <laughs> totally. <laughs> so um, I just want to say that for people because I think like <laughs> it's, um, if you could just take two weeks off after an episode like that, or even with your Hashimoto's and just like, if I could write you a prescription and insurance could cover like a two week vacation where like people just wait on you hand and foot, um, you could put your Hashimoto's in remission really, really quick. And I really advocate that insurance companies do that, but they're not going to. So that's why I start with a lower dose of medication, though, is because I don't want to push you past your threshold. And you're more than just numbers. I have to know your experience in all of that. 
And so I will usually start at about half the dose of what I think somebody is going to need to be at. Because what if I'm wrong? And what if they do fine on a lower dose? Yeah. Yay. Um, but otherwise, we will titrate up and that will happen over you know several months time. Because like I said, I'm going to be retesting in six to eight weeks. But I do check in two weeks after starting a medication. I want to know where people are at. And I'm like, you let me know. If Energizer Bunny happened, then we went too far. So all of this is to say, I think we absolutely have to focus on gut health. We have to figure out it's the seat of the immune system. It's all living there. It's where it all started, right? It's all went down there. We've got to look at the immune system in the gut context, and we have to start working on gut health. So I'm usually doing testing on gut, or if I'm like, you know, sometimes people are like financially, they're like, I, I can't afford to do a lactose breath test on a stool culture. And I'm like, okay, let's just start with something. Like we're going to start with like where I think like things might be going and what could help. And let's go from there until we can like get to that place. I always have like, you know, if people are like, why even do it? Because I always have concerns about um, parasites. If there's potential like parasitic infection, we know blastocystis hominis can be very common in Hashimoto's. And for some people, it's not problematic. And for other people, it's very problematic. And um, it can also be if you are somebody who has like weird hives where you're like, why do I get hives out of nowhere? That can be a sign of blastocystis. So definitely be on the lookout for that. So definitely want to work on gut health, want to support those adrenals. I am usually bringing in adaptogens. Oh, I would say almost every patient, I start with like an adrenal formula that has adaptogens, vitamin C, B5, magnesium, something that's just going to support their adrenal glands while we work on the nutrition component. Because if you're not somebody, well, I think, we have to honor so much more in the functional medicine space that people who are sick, people with Hashimoto's, endometriosis, these kinds of conditions, don't have the energy to rally, to make all the healthy food we want them to eat because we know it could help them. They just don't have that kind of energy. And so we need to start supporting those adrenal glands right away while we help them muster up the energy and get to eating a more nutrient-dense diet. And for everybody listening, I will say that after, you know, 20 years of being a nutrition scientist, and I did have a nutrition practice, and over 10 years as a physician, the people who are most successful in creating lasting health go slow and steady in their changes and don't rapidly do everything. And the people who burn out, who are online cussing out the wellness industry, being like, you guys suck so bad. Um, are the people who are likely A-type personalities, like I am, like the most people who develop autoimmune disease, who are like, I am going to be the ace, the rock star of Hashimoto's or whatever it is, and I'm going to like cure this overnight kind of mindset. And I, I love the energy you're bringing. And also, let's like, let's save our energy and let's focus on what is absolutely essential. So this is my long-winded uh, answer, but I would say you need to focus on gut, thyroid, and adrenals at the same time. And for everybody who's like, but what about my sex hormones, my ovarian hormones, my period problems? I don't focus on those first, which people are always shocked by because they're like, you talk about this so much. I have a pyramid in my book where I show insulin and adrenal glands are the foundation of your hormones and thyroid is above that. That means your thyroid is going to be responding to whatever's happening in that foundation and your sex hormones are at the tippy top. So if your thyroid's not right, your adrenals aren't right, your insulin's not right, forget it. 
forget it. Why am I going to chase around just trying to be like, oh, let me throw a bunch of supplements at you to like try to get your estrogen to detox or get your progesterone up or, you know, even change your testosterone when I know I have to work from the ground up. Now, as I said, I'm going to start making these diet lifestyle shifts, the things that are going to help with estrogen metabolism and detox. But these are the same things that are going to support the thyroid, support the adrenal, support blood sugar regulation. I love that there's that hierarchy in your book. <laughs> it's so good. Um, for people who have had their medication titrated mm. and they still don't feel good, what would you, and maybe they haven't explored any sort of gut healing or liver um, detox pathways with their provider? Um, are there certain reasons, because you hear this all the time, right? Like, oh, I'm on medication and I, I don't feel good. I haven't felt Always. good in like 10 years. Yeah. And um, where, what would you make, what would you recommend for that woman? Yeah, medication is not the end all be all. Yeah. It is what your conventional provider is going to tell you is, it's like, let me just say, your conventional provider is going to be like, you're on medication, you're fine. Your thyroid symptoms look fine. You're like, I'm dragging. I feel like I'm dying. They're like, eh, you look fine. Are you looking at me like you're not looking at my labs? And then you'll see other people on the other end of the spectrum who, you know, kind of they're they're medical providers as well, but they subscribe to this like no medication for anyone for life, like try never to do it. Um, and they're like, you know, like they're, you know, totally dismissing that like medication can do anything and they're offering you all these other solutions. And the reality is, is that the solution is in the center. So medication is absolutely necessary if you need it. We've established that. When you get into the other side of things, which is people being like, do it all with diet, that is essential as well. Your nutrition is essential. So if you've been on medication and you don't feel well, I would want to know where are your thyroid antibodies? Because if that autoimmune disease is still progressing, I hope I'm not the first person to tell you, but if I am, I'm glad you're hearing it. The reality is, is you likely have other autoimmune conditions at this point. And while everybody has labeled you, diagnosed you, stamped you as Hashimoto's, they may be overlooking other things. We see this all the time in women's health. You get one diagnosis and they're like, that's all you are. That's all I can see. But you can have multiple things going on at the same time. And in fact, research has shown that you are likely to have three autoimmune conditions by the time you get diagnosed with Hashimoto's. Like it can take so long. So that is one thing I would say is the autoimmunity has not been checked. You are not addressing your gut health. You are not, um, you know, working on that autoimmune component. Then you may have other autoimmune conditions that need to be investigated. So as I talked about joint pain, you could go on and develop rheumatoid arthritis. If you are starting to notice that your scalp is really itchy or you're having itchy patches, you may be developing psoriasis. Like there are other autoimmune conditions that can tag along because once you lose tolerance to yourself, it can be something else. So this is why it's so important that, like I said, that person who has those TPO antibodies, but their thyroid panel is normal. We do everything we can to keep you from progressing to thyroid destruction where you need a medication. And we also get that autoimmunity tamed. So definitely looking at inflammation. So getting a C-reactive protein or an HSCRP, which is high, high sensitivity, that's uh, that one uh, is, I think, 
better when you just don't know. Like, you know, if, if somebody has autoimmunity, like you can you can run a CRP if you know this person's inflamed and you're going to catch it. But if you're like, eh, like I want to catch even the littlest bit, we got to go for that because inflammation is exhausting, is very exhausting for the body. So understand that even if your medication is right, your adrenal glands are still having to work heavily. Even if your medication's right, you may still have blood sugar dysregulation, which can be a consequence of what was going on in the early autoimmunity. And that needs to be addressed. This is why I think everybody should have a hemoglobin A1C done at least once a year, along with a fasting insulin if their doctor will order it. So we can catch those kinds of metabolic changes overall. But the biggest thing I want people to recognize as I say all this and I'm talking about testing is what you do every day is going to have a bigger impact than what happens in your doctor's office. And that should be empowering. I know sometimes people get bogged down by information about nutrition or even doing like like saunas and cold plunges and um, you know uh, infrared light therapy. All of these things are really good too, by the way. Um, I was laughing with my husband about this. Um, there was some longevity speaker who was just saying that like, hey, if you can't do a cold plunge, like at least end your showers in cold water. And they're like a Harvard researcher and they're talking all about it. And everyone's like, oh, this is so amazing. And I was telling him, I'm like, you know what's really funny about this is there's this whole lineage called hydrotherapy and naturopathy. And we've I've been doing cold showers, ending it in cold showers for like over a decade because if that wasn't drilled into my mind in school that like that was part of longevity, part of how you keep your immune system healthy. Um, and now to see it's like very mainstream. Uh, sorry, a little bit of a tangent there. Anyhow, it's easy to get bogged down by all of these things and be like, there's just so much to do. But understand that those things absolutely move the needle. And so it's really easy to be like, God, like I'm sick and everybody just wants me to do more. And like, if, and it feels like I'm, I'm being blamed. Like I'm the victim here and yet I'm being blamed. Like this is my fault because, you know, there's all of these things that I could have done. Please reframe your mindset because that is one of the most powerful things you can do in healing and recognize that you acquired new information and that gave you a new opportunity. And so why I go on this tangent about the cold showers is that, um, and here's a fun fact. You start with fun facts. My husband's grandfather started the first hydrotherapy clinic in the United States, which is crazy. Wow. I was like, I think we were meant to be together. <laughs> when I was like, I remember talking to his mom like so very, very long ago. We were um, friends before we ever dated. So this was like when I was like 19 um, and she was like, you know, talking about, um, you know, doing cold showers and dry skin brushing. And I was like, what is this stuff? And it wasn't until I got to naturopathic medical school that they're like, you need to be doing cold showers and like dry skin brushing and all of that. And so understand, though, with all of that, I knew this information, right? I was talking about this information like a decade ago with my patients, but just now has it gone mainstream and now everybody knows about it so why do i highlight that how could you have freaking known that how could you have known that like ending in cold showers would have been helpful there's so much new information coming out that i think it's easy for us to be like god if i had just done that maybe i wouldn't be sick or, or you know maybe maybe this wouldn't have happened and feel really guilty about it but understand that like not even Many doctors or researchers even knew some of this stuff was helpful. Like, 
the infrared light therapy and these new light devices and coming out and people are like, oh, this is so fantastic. And then I'm seeing people being like, oh, God, like if I had just done that and it's like they weren't even available. You had to go to a clinic to do that. So I say all of this because we're going to find out something more in a decade and be like, oh, wow, do not have the mindset of like, oh, shoulda, coulda, woulda. Instead, hey, I learned something new. How can this help me? And how can I evaluate, is this true for me? Because while we can sit here and say all of these things are helpful, it's like talking about intermittent fasting. And we could certainly talk about that in women. It is not the same for everybody. It is not going to be helpful for everybody in the same way. And so you always have to ask, what's true for me? And what actually is helping me? Which can be challenging with brain fog, right? (laughs) going from the head to like that intuition and you know if you have gut dysbiosis am i like am i supposed to be trusting my gut if i have gut dysbiosis (laughs) well and those little critters are like nothing to see here they're like jedi they're like there is no problem here there's (laughs) nothing to see here we want to live here and you're like i think something's off and they're like i'm gonna gaslight you from within (laughs) so understand those little bugs they do have their own agenda which is kind of like amazing um, that they, you know, are, are uh, so good, so adapted to living with us. Uh, yeah. Um, I want to ask... a fair point. Yeah. I just I wa- want to honor that that's a fair point. Yeah, that is a fair point. I want to ask you one more question. And this is back to this idea of libido. I think when we think of Hashimoto's, that trifecta of kind of genetics, leaky gut, and then stressors. Yeah. And one of the stressors that I think a lot of people don't think about is the stress of, is my libido lower than it should be or do I have a low sex drive as a woman or am I not meeting my husband's needs and I think it's a stressor maybe we don't even think about because there's other stressors that are more present maybe it's financial or the physical stress of not feeling well is it true that women just have a lower sex drive is that like an assumption we should make for ourselves as women this is like a huge myth that I bust in the book because so it's back to that, you know, libido chapter again, where it's much more complicated than that. And it's not that women have a particularly low sex drive in general. It is more that our our sexual desire looks different than what we are, what's portrayed in the major media that we see. So I talk about in the book, like, you know, I don't even remember the list that we finally landed on. I know Vampire Diaries was in there, but I had a long list of like all of these coming of age shows where it's just like, you know, it's always the spontaneous desire. Um, why I remember Vampire Diaries is because I posed the question of how do vampires even get wet? Like, I do not understand <laughs> this. Like, you're not, they can't get pregnant because they're not cycling. And so you're not <laughs> ovulating. And like, so you don't have these hormones. I just don't understand. You're dead. You don't have a cardiovascular system operating. Anyhow, they get, still get erections. It happens, apparently. So that's a vampire for me. Um, so... With us, uh, this whole idea of low libido, the question we want to ask is, what's my normal? So if a patient says to me, like, I have a low libido and I, you know, I'm concerned about this, I ask, like, what makes you think that? And if they say, well, compared to my partner, I'm like, well, do you ask your partner, do you compare your bowel movements? Do you compare, like, your sleep? Do you compare, like, any other metrics of health? By the way, people with bowel movements are a metric of health. Do you compare any of those things? No, but we do this with libido and we worry about it and we get in our because we're also advertised to about it. And we're advertised to of like, 
oh, you should get this sexy lingerie. Like Valentine's Day, anniversaries, um, all of these things that center around expectations for having sex puts a lot of people out of the mood because they're like, I don't want to ha- I don't want to have to have sex. That's not sexy. That's normal. That's a normal break if you have that. So the question is always, what's your normal? And then to understand that there is um, Rosemary Basson, she's a brilliant doctor, came up with um, this model of how we and why we enter into sex. And it's not always about actually wanting an orgasm or actually wanting sex. It can be about wanting connection. It can be about wanting to, you know, relieve stress for some people, uh, wanting to um, make up after a fight and feel like connected again. And just so people know, there's a lot of judgment around things where I say this sometimes and people are like, oh, makeup sex is like toxic. Is it? Because if you actually talked it out and you processed it and then you're like, okay, let's like next level have an intimate time, then like who's to say that's toxic? So why I think her model is brilliant is because it teaches us about the different reasons why we want to have sex. It's not always just so simple as what's going on with, um, you know, our clitoris. Is it swelling? Is it, is it engaged? Is it here for it? But it can be so much more than that. And then it also brings up that context matters. So the context of the situation you're in, the context of your life, the context of your experiences around this matter, context of your experiences of your relationship, and the concept of responsive versus spontaneous desire. So I used this spontaneous earlier, and that really describes exactly what you see in the media, exactly what you experience when you start a relationship, right? And you just look at someone and you're like, Oh, there's a stirring down there. Things are flowing. Like I'm, I'm ready to go. And then maybe orgasms are a lot easier. Not always, though. I talk about the orgasm gap because right now we're talking about heterosexual relationships, and there is an orgasm gap, and you can read about it in the book. the The whole though concept though that spontaneous is the metric by which we should be measured is completely wrong. In fact, it's a lot what medicine and society has done. More men have spontaneous desire than this responsive desire that I'm going to get to. And so society says, medicine says, the male body is the standard to which we are all measured. And then there's this inferior baby-making components come with it model over here. And that is problematic because we are not just, you know, Dr. Stacey Sims, I think, is the first person who said the phrase, we are not small men. Women are not just small men. We are different. And so... This applies, medicine has gotten it wrong in so many ways. I mean, God, they didn't include us in drug trials until like the 90s. And even still, we just had the COVID vaccine like come out and they were like, menstrual cycles, we'll think about it later. And I get it because we were like in a crisis mode. But still, it's a whole thing where like we're always an afterthought. And this spontaneous desire is the same. It's like this is the standard. Except that responsive desire is real. And responsive desire is valid. And responsive desire isn't better or worse than spontaneous. And with responsive desire, this is where you're not likely going to be the person who engages in sex, initiates sex, excuse me, initiates sex. So you are not going to be the person that's just like, well, I'm going to like sex them today and be like, would it, like I'm going to wear these sexy <laughs> panties. Or you're not going to be the person who's like, ooh, like I wonder if they'd like want this like, you know, selfie of me like sent to them or like, you know, you're not going to be that person engaging. And that's like the modern way people are doing it these days. I hear um, (laughs) these youngins, (laughs) you know, you're not going to be that person who 
initiates sex. So you're not going to be that person who sees their partner in the kitchen and is like, ooh, I'm going to go rub up on them. And that's normal. That's totally normal. Caveat, you might during ovulation, during that ovulatory window, I talk about that in the book, what changes with your hormones that your brain might be like, yeah, let's do that. But for the most part, you're going to be the person who responds to sexual stimuli. So sexual stimuli isn't just touch. Sexual stimuli can be words. Scent is one of those things that when we talk about the gas pedal, scent can be one of those things that then it's not necessarily a candle or a Glade plug-in people. Those are not good for your hormones, but like how your partner smells. And uh, these different stimuli coming in, like maybe seeing your partner play with the kids or, um, you know, doing something that you're like, whoa, like that is their talent. Like they're just like acing that. And that can be also input that like, oh, sexy stuff, sexy stuff. But as the stimuli is coming in, and things get going, like really get going. So maybe your partner starts touching you, starts kissing you, and you know they've been whispering those sweet things in your ear and all of the sexual stimuli is coming in. Then your body's like, oh yeah, we're into this. We like this. Let's do more of this. But before then, it might've been a situation where your body was like, what, huh, meh? Like, and that's normal. It's not because there's anything wrong with you. It's because your mode of operation is you respond to sexual stimuli coming in. You don't just like generate, you don't got a little machine generating like sexual vibes within you, which is more of that spontaneous desire. And both are totally normal. And there usually is a mismatch in couples. And that is why people are like, oh gosh. And it's usually women who are having this responsive desire. And it's and like I said, it's very complicated, um, but I broke it down in one chapter and then I put it into the 28 day program as part of solving your hormone issues. I also wanted you to understand your normal when it comes to your sexual health and your pleasure and start to incorporate those things so that you can have more pleasure in your life like we talked about, but also have that connection with your partner that you want and help your partner understand you better. So important for women to hear and to know. Uh, Jolene, where can people find your book and where can people find you? Yeah, well, you can call your indie bookstore and ask them to order it. Um, <laughs> but I know that sometimes it's easier just to hit Barnes & Noble and Amazon and that's okay too. And then you can find me at my main hub, which is drbrighton.com, B-R-I-G-H-T-E-N. So drbrighton.com and then I'm all over social media at Dr. Jolene Brighton. Thank you, ladies. So informative. I took a ton of notes. I'm oh, sure awesome. all the listeners did too. Oh, fantastic. Well, thanks so much for having me.